a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, this program exists because there is a battle going on for your mind. And the crazy thing is, it's it's not me fighting for your mind, and it's uh, it's actually you who needs to be fighting for your mind. So uh, I'm here to brainwash you into thinking for yourself. And uh, at some point, that means you're going to probably outgrow me and move on. And you know what? I'm totally okay with that. That's uh, That's how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to be charting your own course. Anyway... Thanks for joining us. If you are a first-time wrong thinker or a seasoned questioner of the narrative, I'm nonetheless glad that you're with us. This program is brought to you by great sponsors each weekday, Monday through Friday, by MonticelloCollege.org, by LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, also GovernYourIncome.com and SolarPatriots.com. And there's a nice link in my show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com. There we go. All right, let's uh, let's jump in. Boy, I tell you, in, in, in looking through the material that I'm going to be sharing with you today, I actually had to pull myself back and, and just, you know, look in the mirror for a minute and say, okay, are you just venting? Is this is this is this just a chance to vent your spleen and get a few things off your chest and, you know, uh, maybe uh, thunder for a few moments? So I'm going to warn you up front. There's some fairly provocative commentary that I'm going to be sharing with you, but I think this is really great stuff nonetheless. And so I, I'm going to try very hard not to appeal to your baser emotions, your anger or frustration, but still try to clearly point out some of the problems that we're facing as well as some of the likely solutions. So with that in mind, my goal always is to leave you feeling more sure of who, who you are and what you stand for then to simply point you in a direction and say, attack, that's, you know, there's your enemy. I've been through that enemy-driven thinking phase, and while it does tend to draw a crowd, I mean, there's no doubt about it, that uh, you want to draw an audience, give them a demon to wrestle with, throw some red meat, yes, you will draw an audience. I think there's something more that needs to happen here. But let's dive in, and, and you'll see what I'm talking about. With, uh, with our divisions as deep as they are right now, that I think it's pretty safe to say we have two nations living within the same borders. And I would point to, for instance, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial as an example of this. I look at uh, the, the, the footage of what happened to him back in August of last year where he ended up having to shoot three people and, uh, you know, now he's facing trial and possible life imprisonment for the deaths of two of those people and the grievous wounding of another one. And to me, it's very clear cut that uh, this kid was not a troublemaker. This, this was not some troglodyte who just wanted to strap on a rifle and go hunt bad dudes. But there's a segment of America, and by a segment, I mean like half the population, appears to buy into the narrative that, no, that's exactly what it was. And, and, and you'll see this in things that, things that are being broadcast right now on mass media that I, I think 
you know, even 10 years ago, this would have been rejected as, you know, pants on head lunacy. But it's being treated with seriousness and gravitas. Oh, yes, yes, they nod thoughtfully, stroke their beards. Mm-hmm. Yes, the, the judge's ringtone on his phone. The fact the judge is, uh, is eviscerating the assistant district attorney over uh, procedural and, and just blatant violations of, of what is supposed to happen in the courtroom. Like questioning, you know, trying to cast doubt on the defendant because, well, this is the first time you've spoken up since this event. You know, as if, well, this, does the Fifth Amendment exist for a reason? I mean, can a defendant remain silent or are we supposed to coerce them into, you know, condemning themselves? Anyhow, there's a, there's a very sizable group of people who think that what's happening there is because the judge is a racist. In fact, there was at least a couple of activists came out and said pretty much exactly this yesterday. The judge is a white supremacist. Maybe you're starting to see a pattern. Everything that disagrees with me or everything that disproves what I'm trying to push is white supremacy. Everything is white supremacist. Now, the good news is when someone pushes that trope, eventually people realize, oh, my gosh, they're a one-note symphony. there's, There's nothing else they have to go to. Toothpaste commercial? Oh, yeah. Look, it talks about whitening your teeth. More evidence of white supremacy because everybody knows white teeth are just another example of white is better than everybody else. I don't see it, but <clears throat> I think there are people who, who literally look for an excuse to be offended by anything. And my point is this. With differences this deep, how long can we continue to go without this devolving into some Balkans-type violence. I don't say that lightly. I remember very well what was going on 25, 30 years ago and how ugly it was. No, I wasn't living there. No, I, I uh, I didn't serve in the military in Bosnia, but I just, I do have a friend actually who served in the military, the U.S. military, who was over there as part of a peacekeeping force. Some of the things he shared with me makes me realize that's that's about the worst place a society can go. The ugliness of ethnic cleansing and just that that balkanized mentality where, well, you're not from our village, therefore you must be the enemy. It's really dangerous. So I'll just go on record and tell you, I'm one of those people who believes we may have reached the point where it's time for a conscious decoupling within... America. And for some people, that's that's a very fearful thing. Oh, are we going to do it? How can we peacefully separate? I don't know, but would you prefer the alternative and let it, uh, let it come to violence and then see how that all shakes out? Seems to me a lot of innocent people would suffer. So let's, let's explore the case that it's time for America to break up, albeit peaceably. This is an article from Max Borders that was published on the American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER. And I think this is a very principled approach here. He starts with a quote from Thomas Jefferson, written in 1816 on ward republics. Jefferson said, where every man is a sharer in the direction of his ward republic, or some of the higher ones, and feels that he is a participator in the government of affairs, not merely at an election, one day in the year, but every day. Now, Max Borders points out, In the 20th century, Americans had national unity. 
and this unity was achieved through centralized media and government schools inculcating civic narratives. Having a couple of common enemies never hurt, and this wasn't so much a conspiracy as a sign of the times. Because in those days, you could find some common ground in the Constitution or in the fight against the Nazis and the commies. But now those days are over. Today, illiberal extremists hover over the Republic's dry detritus. On the far left, there are Twitter mobs with Molotov cocktails. On the far right, there are reactionaries with tiki torches. And he says these extremists are not just hotheads. They risk the Republic's going up in flames. And there are shades of controversy, culture warring, and class struggles at every stage in between. Max Borders says we haven't seen this kind of national animus since the 1960s. And it will get worse before it gets better. Increasingly, Americans are getting sucked into weird affinity groups and filter bubbles whose members view outsiders as enemies. Now, he says, in the Internet age, no grand civic narrative can long prevail. Manufactured consent was only possible in the days of ABC, NBC, and state-approved social studies books. We now have an information ecology polluted by sensationalism, groupthink, availability cascades, and meme wars. By the way, if you're wondering about any of those terms, he actually has links, which will give you examples and, and show you what he's talking about. Max Borders says those who color outside tribal lines are greeted with hostility. And he asks, why? Because too many people have become unmoored from the values and practices that give life meaning. And far too many have divorced themselves from the liberal ideas that animated the American founding. Now, some people are having a knee-jerk reaction to that word liberal, but I'm suggesting that perhaps there's another meaning of this other than left-wing liberal. So, easy there, big guy. (laughs) Max Border says, as America plunges headlong into a debt crisis, the culture wars continue to distract us. He says, for better or worse, we're being pulled apart as the government goes broke. And if you don't think the government is broke, he says, then just spend a little more time on this website. You can read about the unsustainable spending and debt, and he gives you about three different links that you can follow to learn exactly that. So what can be done? Well, Max Border says, it's time to break up. Yeah. Don't worry, I'm going to give him the old, it's, it's not you, it's me speech. We'll cover that, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article from Max Borders published on the American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER.org. This is one of those sites, one of those news aggregators. Uh, well, I shouldn't call them a news aggregator. They actually are a, uh, a website that publishes fresh content on a daily basis. And uh, you can always choose from a number of different topics, but uh, very informative, extremely well-sourced, and most of all, <clears throat> extremely nonpartisan. So this is not, uh, you know, a front for, you know, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or even the Libertarian Party. It's just... You know, economists taking a good, 
principled view of what's going on and giving you their best analysis. And in this case, Max Borders is saying it's time for America to break up. Now, he's talking peacefully, but he says, look, there are all kinds of ways to do this. In fact, he set out a guide in part two of after collapse, which he links to. But he says, if you're thinking this guy's trying to sell me a book, well, he says you'd be right. But I wouldn't take a dime if I could somehow get it into every American's hands. He says the message is important. Trouble is coming. And we have to be prepared for it. Mind, body, and system. So his book, After Collapse, is not a prepper's book. Though he says a prepper's mentality doesn't seem like a punchline anymore. Instead, each chapter corresponds with seven dimensions along which America is breaking down. See if any of these ring true. One of those dimensions is our socioeconomic models are faulty. Secondly, our state and corporate hierarchies are faltering. Third, our belief in the founding ideals is fading. Four, our systems of mutual aid are dying. Five, our collective intelligence is fractured. Six, our civil discourse is deteriorating. And seven, our government is in debt and disorder. Now, again, you may not understand all of the socioeconomic model, corporate and state hierarchy. What what are we talking about here? But the punchline, he says, is look, only decentralization can save us. So Max Porter says, let me focus on that point for just a moment. Decentralization is simply a conscious decoupling. Do you remember? I, I can't remember which Hollywood couple it was who talked about, uh, you know, they were splitting up. But they, they couched it in uh, much softer language. Well, this is more of a conscious decoupling as opposed to a Hollywood breakup. And Max Porter says breaking up is hard to do, but it's not that hard. He says we have to create more space for institutional pluralism. So it might be time to break up the country a bit more. Peaceful secession, a loose confederation, at least more federalism. Let people experiment and be united in experimentation. Let the Bernie Sanders supporters turn Vermont into a socialist bi-local paradise. Let Northern California break off from the Bay Area and Southern California to form the state of Jefferson. Let New Hampshire become even freer. Let the Republic of Texas separate, even if Austin keeps it weird as an independent city-state. He says this is nothing new, and it works. Polycentric legal frameworks like those in Switzerland or in the Hanseatic League should help us localize tug-of-war-style politics. Now, we don't have to stop trading with one another, and we shouldn't, of course. But we'd have to stop trying to impose monolithic laws upon people who prefer to live in different political, cultural, or economic niches. And, of course, we have some laws on the books that might help us achieve such a condition. For instance, subsidiarity, subsidiarity, <laughs> subsidiarity rules. He says some might object that the Articles of Confederation were tried and failed. How will the colonies put down rebellions, the powdered wigs wondered at the time? Well, then our Constitution was born. But times have changed. Or maybe it's time to replace the need for revolution with the built-in blessings of decentralization. Or isn't there a law for that already on the books? Perhaps the Articles of Confederation were simply insufficient, but we have the means at our disposal 
to fashion a robust system that allows for plenty of checks and escape hatches. Debates over the proper size and role of government would be over and each jurisdiction would have to prove itself. Fifty experiments at least would allow us all to vote with our U-Hauls. By the way, you're kind of seeing that now. I happen to live <clears throat> excuse me, in a state where a lot of people perceive there is greater autonomy or there is a greater sense of freedom than where they have been, particularly along the West Coast. Can't tell you how many people I see who have moved to the Intermountain West to get away from those places where one size fits all is the prevailing mentality. Now from here, Max Borders talks about a less perfect union, but a more anti-fragile America. And he says such a system would be a step in creating that more anti-fragile condition. As Nassim Taleb puts the matter, I am at the Fed level, libertarian. At the state level, Republican. At the local level, Democrat. And at the friends and family level, a socialist. If that saying doesn't convince you of the fatuousness of left versus right labels, nothing will. Now, Taleb's quote on the quip is based on the idea that local experimentation shouldn't result in system-wide catastrophes and that we should be going local with our pieties. So California's catastrophes, for instance, should remain with California. Such a system would drop much of the incentive to think of one's political ideals as something to be forced down the throats of 330 million souls. Californians could spend lavishly on its failed policies, and Texans would no longer be required to subsidize California's uh, profligrant... uh, uh, I'm really struggling with this word today. Profligacy. There we go. Thank you. As they were during one of the multi-trillion dollar pandemic spending bills, despite Silicon Valley's cash cows. So instead of a monolithic federal government imposing its capricious will, each jurisdiction would have to use what Deidre McCluskey calls sweet talk, to persuade more human souls into their authority. This way we create more experiments in living and insulate more people from the dangers of centralization. Now, some of these might lean theocratic. Utah, I'm looking your direction. Some might lean socialist. A few perhaps might be genuinely free. But as long as each serves its customers sustainably, then so be it. Indeed, some of these experiments might include jurisdictions that are not affixed to a territory at all. The more systems there are, the more likely one can find something closer to the right fit. Whereas currently, a naked emperor is trying to drape its invisible robes around us all. No need for civil war. Max Border says there are too many incentives that keep the current system in place. So it's time for a national divorce. Decentralization, therefore, is the light at the end of a very dark tunnel for America. Now, he says, eventually we may not have a choice. And at that stage, such a breakup will be far uglier and more painful than one we agree to now. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. I would encourage you, check it out. Please click on the links within his article. This is where there is such an overlooked treasure trove of information. And I want to believe in my heart, even if this is kind of self-serving, I want to believe my listeners are the kind of people who will follow the links, who will sit there and follow the information until they're satisfied they have a good grasp of the situation at hand. 
I mean, you're not content just to sit back and let me tell you, okay, here's what you should think. I mean, come on, you have Sesame Street for that. Although, isn't it interesting that uh, the guy, for instance, who developed mRNA vaccines is considered, uh, you know, a heretic on social media while Big Bird is now considered an expert? Yeah, we live in some pretty weird times. Got to take a quick break. We'll come back in just a few moments. Just want to give a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. This is a super generous food storage company. I can tell you food storage prices are going up along with other food prices, but it's still a great idea to act now while there's time. And best of all, get a 25% discount because you're one of my listeners. Use the coupon code HIDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. Save yourself and eat 25%. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we're back. Hey, if you would like to receive my show notes in your email each weekday when I do the show, just uh, go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, mash that subscribe button, and I will send them to you free of charge. And you can, uh, you know, do your own uh, study at your leisure. On the other hand, if you want to hear my dulcet tones, then you know where to tune in to find it each day. All right, moving on here. Years ago, I read a book called America's State Church, and it was by an accountant turned author by the name of Jay Lichty. It is one of the most powerful books I've read. Unfortunately, it was so good, I lent it out to, to some friends, and I don't think it ever found its way back. That's okay. It's, it's somewhere out there doing some good in the world and a truly remarkable book in that it compared, what's it called, um, secular humanist atheism to traditional Judeo-Christian mentality. And when you compare the tenets of how secular humanist atheism operates compared to the Judeo-Christian tenets, it becomes very clear that <clears throat> what is masquerading as a neutral corner. Well, atheism, of course, doesn't uh, espouse any particular belief. Not true. It's every bit a religion. Every bit. It has dogma. It proselytizes. It's very jealous about which space it occupies. And definitely does not like competition. So with that in mind, I was very intrigued when I saw an article pop up on my feed that uh, that illustrates why wokeness is a religion. And if you stop and think about this, there are those who get out there with this fanatical intensity and proselytize the rest of us with what uh, what could only be described as a kind of religious fervor. Now, I'm talking about the social justice types. Michael Schellenberger has a fascinating article, complete with visual aids, which beautifully illustrates why wokeness is a religion. And the subtitle here is uh, why or rather introducing the taxonomy of woke religion. Taxonomy is just simply the science of classification and uh, and organization of various things. So last year, he says, over the last year, a growing number of progressives and liberals have pointed to police killings of unarmed black men, rising carbon emissions, and extreme weather events, and the killing of trans people as proof that the United States has failed to take action on racism, climate change, and transphobia. 
Others have pointed to the war on drugs, the criminalization of homelessness, and mass incarceration as evidence that little has changed in the U.S. over the last 30 years. And yet on each of those issues, he says, the U.S. has actually made significant progress. Police killings of African Americans in our 58 largest cities declined from 217 per year in the 70s to 157 per year in the 2010s. And between 2011 and 2020, carbon emissions declined 14% in the U.S., more than any other nation, while just 300 people died from natural disasters. That's a more than 90% decline over the past century. Public acceptance of trans people is higher than ever. Take a look at any TV commercial campaign or any uh, sitcom and you'll start to see why. The total U.S. prison and jail population peaked in 2008 and has declined significantly ever since. Just 4% of state prisoners, who are 87% of the total prison population, are in for nonviolent drug possession. Just 14% are in for any nonviolent drug offense. And many large cities, including Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Seattle, have, per- have effectively decriminalized public camping by homeless people. Now, progressives respond, well, these gains obscure broad inequalities and are under threat. Black Americans are killed at two or three times the rate of white Americans, according to a Washington Post analysis of police killings between 2015 and 2020. Carbon emissions are once again rising as the U.S. emerges from the COVID pandemic. And scientists believe global warming is contributing to extreme weather events. Now, in 2020, Human Rights Campaign found at least 44 transgender and non-gender conforming people were killed, which is the most since it started tracking fatalities in 2013. Already, that number has reached 45 this year. Drug prohibition remains in effect. Homeless people are still being arrested. And the U.S. still has one of the highest rates of incarceration in the world. But those numbers, too, obscure important realities. Michael Schellenberger says there are no racial differences in police killings when accounting for whether or not the suspect was armed or a threat. In other words, justified versus unjustified shooting. And while carbon emissions will rise in 2021, there's every reason to believe they will continue to decline in the future. So long as natural gas continues to replace coal and nuclear plants continue operating. While climate change may be contributing to extreme weather events, Neither the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, nor any other scientific body predicts it will outpace rising resilience to cause an increase in deaths from natural disasters. Researchers don't know if trans people are being killed disproportionately in comparison to cisgender people, if trans homicides are rising, or if trans people are being killed for being trans rather than some other reason. 26 states have decriminalized marijuana, California and Oregon have decriminalized and legalized, respectively, the possession of all drugs. Progressive district attorneys in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and major cities like that have scaled back prosecutions against people for breaking many laws related to homelessness, including public camping, public drug use, and even theft. And yet many Americans would be surprised to learn any of the above information. In fact, some would reject it outright as false. Consider that despite the decline in police killings of African Americans, the share of the public which said police violence is a serious or extremely serious problem rose from 32% to 45% between 2015 and 2020. 
Despite the decline in carbon emissions, 47% of the public agreed with the statement, carbon emissions have risen in the United States over the last 10 years. And just 16% disagreed. Meanwhile, 46% of Americans agree with the statement, deaths from natural disasters will increase in the future due to climate change. And just 16% disagreed, despite the absence of any scientific scenario supporting such fears. And despite the lack of good evidence, mainstream news media widely reported the killing of trans people is on the rise. Now, Michael Schellenberger says, look, the gulf between reality and perception is alarming for reasons that go beyond the importance of having an informed electorate for a healthy liberal democracy. Distrust of the police appears to have contributed to the nearly 30% rise in homicides after the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests last year, both by emboldening criminals and causing a pullback of police. And a growing body of research finds news media coverage of climate change is contributing to rising levels of anxiety and depression among children. And there's good reason to fear that misinformation about the killing of trans and non-gender conforming individuals contributes to anxiety and depression among trans and gender dysphoric youth. So why is that? Why does there exist such a massive divide between perception and reality on so many important issues? Well, Michael Schellenberger says... Part of the reason appears to stem from the rise of social media and corresponding changes to news media over the last decade. Social media fuels rising and unwarranted certainty, dogmatism, and intolerance of viewpoint diversity and disconfirmatory information. Social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, reward users for sharing information popular with peers, particularly extreme views, and punish users for expressing unpopular, more moderate, and less emotional opinions. So this cycle is self-reinforcing. Audiences seek out views that reinforce their own. Experts seek conclusions. Journalists write stories which affirm the predispositions of their audiences. Now, it may be for these reasons that much of the news media have failed to inform their audiences that there are no racial differences in police killings, that emissions are declining, and that claims of rising trans killings are unscientific. He says another reason may be due to the influence of well-funded advocacy organizations to shape public opinions, or public perceptions, rather, particularly in combination with social media. Now, he's talking organizations like the ACLU, Human Rights Campaign, Drug Policy Alliance, all of which have misled journalists, policymakers, and the public about police killings, drug policy, trans killings simply by leaving out crucial contextual information. And the same has been true from climate activists, including those operating as experts and journalists who withhold information about declining death from natural disasters, the cost of disasters relative to GDP growth, and declining U.S. emissions. Here's where we're going to have to take a quick break. We'll come back to Michael Schellenberger's article. Again, it's in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. So if you want to check this one out for yourself, you will want to look at this article because the charts that he shows are probably the the most informative information you can see on why wokeism is a religion. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Listen, before I dive back into this uh, Michael Schellenberger article, I want to encourage you to click on one of the sponsor links in my show notes. And this is for the sponsor link for GovernYourIncome.com. I know a lot of people are in a bit of a pinch right now in that, uh, you know, you may be facing an employer who's saying, hey, you're going to have to get the shot if you want to keep working here. Or maybe there are other pressures that are just making you wish you could be more in control of your own income. Well, if you click on the link, it will take you to a special website that will explain to you the possible advantages and the possible opportunity for you to engage in day trading on the foreign currency exchange or the Forex markets. Now, this may not be for everybody, but for a person who is looking to have the greatest amount of independence in their income, this might be just the thing. They will train you. They will train you to the proficiency that they will actually trust you with company money to go out there and trade and make money. It's pretty fascinating stuff. Check it out. That's GovernYourIncome.com. All right, back to Michael Schellenberger's article. He talks about how the perception of how things are getting worse, when in fact they're really not getting worse, often comes from journalists and experts withholding information from us in the way these things are reported. And he says, uh, you know, just the fact that they've withheld this evidence, though, doesn't fully capture the religious quality of so much of the progressive discourse when it comes to issues like race, climate, transgender, crime, drugs, homelessness, and the related issue of mental illness. Now, a growing number of liberal, heterodoxical, and conservative thinkers alike use the word woke to describe the religiosity of so many progressive causes today. In his new book, Woke Racism, Columbia University linguist John McWhorter argues that wokeism should literally be considered a religion. As for his evidence to his argument, McWhorter points rather to commonly held myths, like the debunked claim that the War of Independence was fought to maintain slavery, or that racial disparities in educational performance are due to racist teachers. He points to woke religious fervor in seeking to censor, fire, or otherwise punish heretics for holding taboo views. And McWhorter suggests that because wokeism meets specific psychological and spiritual needs for meaning, belonging, and status, pointing out its supernatural elements is likely to have little impact among the woke. But just because an ideology is dogmatic and self-righteous doesn't necessarily make it a religion. So Michael Schellenberger says it's fair to ask whether wokeism is anything more than a new belief system. There is no obviously mythological or supernatural element to woke ideology. And he says its adherents rarely, if ever, justify their statements with reference to God or a higher power. But a deeper look at wokeism does indeed reveal a whole series of mythological and supernatural beliefs, including the idea that white people today are responsible for the racist actions of white people in the past, that climate change risks making humans extinct, and that people can change their sex simply by identifying as the opposite sex. He says that while reading McWhorter's new book, I was surprised to discover many similarities between woke racism and apocalyptic environmentalism, 
in which Apocalypse Never, I describe as a religion, which in, Apoc- which in Apocalypse Never, he describes as a religion. So I got his title wrong. Each offers an original sin as the cause of present-day evils. So like slavery, the Industrial Revolution, each has guilty devils, white people, climate deniers, sacred victims, black people, poor islanders, etc. And what McCorder calls the, the elect, or people self-appointed to crusade against evil. BLM activists Greta Thunberg. They also have taboos, saying all lives matter, criticizing renewables, and purifying rituals, kneeling, apologizing, buying carbon offsets, etc. Now he says, I saw parallels between woke racism, apocalyptic environmentalism, and victimology, which in San Francisco I describe as a religion complete with metaphysical or essentialist views that people can be categorized as victims or oppressors by nature of their identity or experience. By the way, that sounds a lot like uh, classic Marxism, too. You know, the history of the world is the clash of the classes, class warfare. He says, I reached out to a new friend, Peter Bogosian, a philosopher who recently resigned his post at Portland State University in response to wokest repression and other experts in different woke movements. And together we constructed a woke religion taxonomy. Now, again, this is a classification of why woke religion is in fact a religion. Now, it included seven issue areas, including racism, climate change, trans, crime, mental illness, drugs, and homelessness. It cuts across ten religious categories, including original sin, guilty devils, myths, sacred victims, the elect, supernatural beliefs, taboo facts, taboo speech, purifying rituals, and purifying speech. And he says, we were surprised by how straightforward it was to fill in each category and by the fascinating similarities and differences between them. So Michael Schellenberger says we decided to publish the Woke Religion Taxonomy because it was helpful to our own understanding of wokeism as a religion, and we felt it might help others. The taxonomy identifies common myths and supernatural beliefs and helps explain why so many people continue to hold them, despite overwhelming evidence that they are false. We are under no illusion that taxonomy will reduce the power that wokeism holds over its true believers. But he says, we also believe it will help orient those who are confused by its irrationalism and are seeking an accessible overview. Finally, he says, we're publishing it because we recognize we might be wrong, either about matters of fact or classification. We hope that it will encourage a healthy discussion and debate. So as such, we have published it with the caveat that this is version 1.0 and the expectation that we will revise it in the future. Now, as I mentioned, you really you need to see this to fully appreciate the the different uh, original sins and and religious beliefs that uh, that they have identified in all of these various uh, social justice causes. I can't do it justice trying to uh, to describe it to you. I can just encourage you take a look for yourself. He says he, uh, Michael Schellenberger says he and the others who published this 
would like to rest- would like to stress that we published the taxonomy in service of the liberal and democratic project of so- of social and environmental progress, which we believe to be under threat from wokeism. And he says we believe the U.S. is well positioned to reduce police killings, crime, and carbon emissions, to protect the lives and the mental health of trans or non-gender conforming and cisgender people, and better treatment of the mentally ill and drug addicted. But doing so will require that wokeism weaken its grip over the American psyche. As one of his partners writes, bigotry and racial discrimination are real, and they have no place in society. Yes, there is ongoing racism. Yes, there is ongoing homophobia. Yes, there is ongoing hatred of trans people. These are morally aberrant, or abhorrent rather, and we need to work together to bring about their end. But the woke religion, however, is not the way to stop these moral horrors. It is making our shared problems more difficult to, to solve. Maybe it's time we revisit the idea of separation of church and state as it applies to wokeism. If you, if, if you can look at their chart and can see the case they're making that, yep, wokeism is in fact a religion. It's a religion that has found its way into our schools. Oh, yeah. Are you going to suggest that CRT is a part of that? Absolutely, I am. And the religious uh, fervor with which it is pushed or denied. We're not trying to convert you. We're not trying to proselytize. Sure you're not. You're trying, to, you're trying to teach the kids a new religious way of seeing the world. Maybe it's time that we, uh, we get a little more strict about separation, separating church and state. Or better still, we could just cut right to the chase <clears throat> and separate school and state And then everybody would have to pretty much make their own case without the coercion of the state to, you know, back them up just in case someone looks like they might not be interested. I know, what a concept. Let people choose. Let their conscience direct them. And as long as their behavior is peaceful, what's going on in their head? Well, that's none of your damn business. Believe it or not, that's much more compatible with a free society than anything the wokesters are currently trying to push down your throat. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, the battle for your mind is real. And I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I am here to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as you possibly can. And also to be more certain as to who you are and what you stand for than to be so dead set certain about who, about who and what you're against. So if that sounds like a, a mindset that is simpatico with where you would like to go, pull up a chair and let's explore some of the things going on around us today in, in a fashion that hopefully leaves you somewhat better informed and definitely encouraged 
that there's, there's plenty we can do about it, even if it's at the individual level. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like SolarPatriots.com, GovernYourIncome.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George. Going to have more to tell you about them a little bit later in the hour. Also, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. I really have some fantastic sponsors. And again, if you find value in the content that I share with you on a daily basis, take the time to drop a note to those sponsors. Let them know that this message is reaching your ears, that you appreciate them making it possible for me to do this. Okay, now I don't want to sound dramatic, but the phrase, winter is coming, has a whole different feel given some of the things that we see taking shape around us. So I'm not here to put you in a state of panic, but, you know, it does. there is kind of a strange heaviness that, that I, I feel as I'm watching the seasons change. The last of the leaves have started to come down in my yard, and, you know, it, it was such a beautiful fall. It actually lasted longer than I thought it would. And I, I've enjoyed every moment of all that beautiful color. But, you know, the, the gray skies and the colder temperatures and just the, the, the deadness of winter, it's really starting to creep in. And, and my psyche is, is feeling a little less uh, capable than it has in years past of facing the cold and dark months ahead. Oh, the short daylight. Let's not get started on that. Anyway. C.J. Hopkins, who writes for the Consent Factory, marvelous writer, is warning us that the folks who are trying to impose the new normal on us are also trying to whip us back into a state of mass hysteria over a virus. And so he says the new normal winter is coming. Actually, I'm just going to share his commentary with you. He says winter is coming and you know what that means. That's right. It's nearly time, once again, for the global capitalist ruling classes to whip the new normal masses into a state of mindless mass hysteria over an imaginary apocalyptic virus. The same imaginary apocalyptic virus that they've whipped the new normal masses into a state of hysteria over throughout the winter for the last two years. Well, they've got their work cut out for them this time. He says, seriously, how much more mass hysterical could the new normals possibly get at this point? C.J. Hopkins says, the vast majority of the Western world has been transformed into a pseudo-medical dystopia in which you have to show your health purity papers to enter a cafe and get a cup of coffee. People who refuse to get experimentally vaccinated against a virus that causes mild to moderate symptoms or often no symptoms whatsoever in about 95% of the infected, and the overall infection fatality rate of which is approximately 0.1% to 0.5%, are being systematically segregated, stripped of their jobs, denied medical treatment, demonized as a danger to society, censored, fined, and otherwise persecuted. Now, if you think he is overstating the case, you've got to look at the front page of the Australian newspaper that he supplies here. What's that headline? Public enemy number one. Unvaxxed border jumper puts state on COVID alert. And, and these are some of the, the, they've got a picture of the guy. They've got uh, a sticker here that says, don't be like Duran. Scan code to get vaxxed. Allegedly entered old or entered uh, Queensland without a pass. 
hasn't used check-in apps in September, left hospital despite medical advice not to do so. Yeah, somewhere in the great beyond, John Dillinger's going, hey, I was public enemy number one, and, well, frankly, that sounds pretty tame to me. So, yeah, C.J. Hopkins says the great new new normal purge is on. The unvaccinated and other infidels and heretics are being hunted by fanatical, hate-drunk mobs dragged before the new normal inquisition and made examples of all over the world. He says, here in New Normal, Germany, popular footballer Joshua Kimmich is being publicly drawn and quartered for refusing to submit to being vaccinated and to profess his faith in the New Normal world order. In the USA, the unvaccinated stand accused of murdering Colin Powell, an 84-year-old cancer-ridden war criminal. Australia is planning to imprison people and fine them $90,000 for not wearing a medical-looking mask. That's quite a crime. Or the attempted worship at a synagogue or whatever. In Florida, of all places, fanatical school staff tied a medical-looking mask to the face of a nonverbal Down syndrome girl with nylon cord day after day for over six weeks until her father discovered what they were doing. Now, he says, I think I could go on, but... I don't think I have to. The Internet is brimming with examples of mass hysterical and sadistic behavior. And that's not to mention the mass hysteria rampant among the new normals themselves. For example, the parents who are lining up to get their children needlessly vaccinated, then rushed into the emergency room with totally manageable myocarditis. It's actually a tweet that he shares here from Dr. Shane Huntington sitting in the in this Melbourne hospital room, sitting with my son hooked up to his heart monitors to post, uh, post his second Pfizer shot. I have a message for all parents. Get your kids vaccinated if you can. These side effects are rare and manageable. Help protect us all. The guy's a medical doctor, I guess, you know. Hey, the fact that my kid's in the hospital with heart problems from the shot, well, it's just a remarkable coincidence. Get your kids vaxxed. Still, C.J. Hopkins writes, as mass hysterical as things are, count on Globocap to go balls out on the mass hysteria for the next five months. He says the coming winter is crunch time, folks. They need to cement the new normal in place so they can dial down the apocalyptic pandemic. If they're forced to extend it another year, well, not even the most brainwashed new normals would buy that. Or, all right, sure, the most brainwashed would, but... They represent a small minority. See, most new normals are not fanatical totalitarians. They're just people looking out for themselves. People go along with almost anything to avoid being ostracized and punished. But believe it or not, there is a limit to the level of absurdity they're prepared to accept. And the level and duration of relentless stress and cognitive dissonance they're prepared to accept. Well, his point is most of them have reached that limit. They've done their part. They've followed orders. They've worn the mask. They got the vaccinations. They're happy to present their obedience papers to anyone who demands to see them. Now they want to go back to normal, but they can't because, well, because of us. See, Globocop can't let them, Globocap rather, can't let them return to normal. In other words, the new totalitarian version of normal until everyone, in other words, everyone who matters, has submitted to being vaccinated and is walking around with a scannable certificate of ideological conformity in their smartphones. 
they'd probably even waive the vaccination requirement if we would just bend the knee and pledge our allegiance to the WEF or BlackRock or Vanguard or whoever and carry around a QR code confirming that we believe in the science or the Covidian creed or whatever other ecumenical corporatist dogma. Seriously, though, he says the point of this entire exercise, at least this phase of the entire exercise, is to radically, irrevocably transform society into a monolithic corporate campus where everyone has to scan their IDs at every turn of an endless maze of perpetually monitored, eco-friendly, gender-fluid, ideologically uniform, non-smoking, totally meat-free safe spaces owned and operated by Global Cap or one of its agents, subsidiaries, and assigns. He says the global capitalist ruling classes are determined to transform the planet into this fascist woke utopia and enforce unwavering conformity to its useless values, no matter the cost, and uh, we, the unvaccinated, are standing in their way. They can't just round us up and shoot us. This is global capitalism, not Nazism or Stalinism. They need to break us. They need to break our spirits to coerce, gaslight, harass, and persecute us until we surrender our autonomy willingly. And they need to do this during the next five months. And he says preparations are now in progress. We're going to come back to his article in just a few moments. I do want to give you this this one bit of a spoiler. We don't have to fight them head on. We just have to refuse to surrender our principles. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Sharing this excellent article from C.J. Hopkins, The New Normal Winter is Coming. And uh, this is... I I think there's some legitimacy to what he's talking about here. You and I have, uh, we have a fight on our hands, but it's it's not uh, in the streets, you know, mostly peaceful protest kind of fight. It's more of a test of our will and a test of our commitment to our principles. We're going to come back to this in just a moment. I want to give a quick shout out here to Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. This is a business which folks in southern Utah probably recognize. Founded back in 1984 by Ken Harker. Still in business. It's been owned by two different, uh, different. actually it's, been, it's changed owners twice. Eric and Teresa Alsop are the current owners. They're a wonderful family. And if you have any interest whatsoever in sewing, in sewing rather, embroidery, quilting, or just repair of uh, those uh, implements that go along with those things, they actually could take very good care of you. They sell fabric. They sell superior thread. And they really know what they're about. So if you want to know more about them, you can stop by and see them at 779 South Bluff Street. You can call them at 435-628-4069. And there's a link in my show notes linking to SewingQuiltingCenter.com. Give them some love and tell them, hey, Brian's been talking about you on the radio. So back to C.J. CJ Hopkins' article here. He says that there are preparations now in progress to bring we, the unvaccinated, to uh, cause us to bend our knee 
And here are some of the here's some of the evidence he offers in in regards to this long winter that's being planned for us. He says in the UK, despite a drop in cases and the fact which the authorities have been forced to acknowledge that the vaccinated can spread the virus just like the unvaccinated. He says the government is preparing to go to plan B and roll out the social segregation system that most of Europe has already adopted. So in Germany, the epidemic emergency of national importance, in other words, the legal pretense for enforcement of corona restrictions, is due to expire mid-November unless they can seriously jack up the cases, which seems unlikely at this point. So the authorities are working to revise the Infection Protection Act to justify maintaining those restrictions indefinitely, despite the absence of a pandemic or an emergency. And yeah, he has a link to that. And so on. So he says, I think you get the picture. This winter is probably going to get a little nutty. Okay, a little more, more than a little nutty. In terms of manufactured mass hysteria, it's probably going to make Russiagate, the war on populism, the global war on terror, the Red Scare, and every other mass manufactured hysteria campaign you can possibly think of look like an amateur production of Wagner's Gotterdammerung. In other words, kiss reality or whatever is left of reality goodbye. The clock is ticking and Global Cap knows it. If they expect to pull off this great reset, they're going to need to terrorize the new normal masses into a state of protracted pants-pooping panic and uncontrollable mindless hatred of the unvaccinated and anyone challenging their rule. A repeat of the winters of 2020 and 2021 is not going to cut it. It's going to take more than the now standard repertoire of fake and manipulated statistics, dire projections, photos of death trucks, non-overflowing, overflowing hospitals, and all the other familiar features of the neo-Gobelizian uh, uh, propaganda juggernaut we've been subjected to for the last 18 months. <clears throat> Reason being, they are facing a growing working-class revolt. Millions of people in countries all over the world are protesting in the streets, organizing strikes, walkouts, sickouts, and mounting other forms of op- opposition. And despite the corporate media's Orwellian attempts to black out any coverage of it or to demonize us all as far-right extremists, the new normals are very aware that this is happening. And the official narrative is finally falling apart. See, the actual facts are undeniable by anyone with an ounce of integrity, so much so that even major global cap propaganda outlets like The Guardian are being forced to grudgingly admit the truth. No, he says, global cap has no choice at this point but to let loose with every weapon in its arsenal short of full-blown despotism, which it cannot deploy without destroying itself. And to hope that we'll finally break down, bend the knee, and beg for mercy. He says, I don't know exactly what they've got in mind, but I'm definitely not looking forward to it. I'm pretty worn out as it is, and from what I gather, so are a lot of you. If it helps at all, he says, maybe look at it this way. We don't have to take the battle to them. All we have to do is not surrender, withstand the coming siege, and make it to April. Or if the strikes, sickouts, and bad weather continue, airlines were looking your direction, it may not even take that long. Okay, so let's, let's process this for just a moment. I suspect that if you're listening to this program, you're probably one of those people who is aware 
that the pressure is definitely ramping up. You know, the, the vaccine mandates are, are a big part of this. And isn't it interesting? Well, actually, I've got a link in the show notes here today to uh, John Miltimore's take on how last week a federal court put the brakes on the Biden administration's vax mandates for employers. And now the White House is just coming around and selling businesses. Well, uh, you can just ignore that court order. <clears throat> Go ahead and implement it anyway while it's being sorted out. What that says to me is government absolutely will not abide by limits on its power. And if government is unwilling to abide by its part of the agreement, that's the Constitution, why should we be bound to obey whatever it tells us? Oh, I know, that sounds terribly anarchic. How scary! But I think C.J. Hopkins has a good point here. The pressure is on. The number of people who are standing up and saying, I would rather walk away from my job or be fired from my job than give in is actually kind of uh, encouraging. And I'm sad for them. The pain and the discomfort and the, the, uh, the, the trauma that they're going to go through and the hardship that they're going to experience is very real. It's not just in their heads. But thank God for people who have the courage of conviction, who know themselves and know their principles well enough that they're willing to suffer for their beliefs. And if you've never suffered for your beliefs, I'm not saying, well, you're not a very good person. But if you can look back and reflect, yeah, I've never really had to suffer for my beliefs. Might be a good time or a good opportunity to ask yourself, what exactly are your beliefs? How committed are you to your beliefs if you've never suffered for them? So I agree with, with C.J. Hopkins. It's, this is not about let's get out there in the streets and let's fight them and uh, we're going we're gonna to tar and feather them. I know it, it, something, there's something very cathartic about the thought of it, but all you have to do is exercise the most powerful word in the world. No. A complete sentence. No. But you have to do this. No. But if you don't do this, then uh, you're gonna make your, we're going to make your life hard. No. Do your best. But my answer is no. And it's not no because I know better than everybody else. And it's not no because I'm, I'm better than everybody else and they have to do what I say. The answer is no because I have my personal autonomy. And I will not surrender that. I won't do it for the public good. I won't do it no matter how you guilt or try to shame me. The answer is no. I think they're counting on us not being able to, to bear, you know, going on much longer under the, the, the weight of the pressure. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. I think they underestimate our commitment to our principles. So use that word proudly. No. Sound like a two-year-old. Well, an intelligent two-year-old making a principled stand, but use that word as often as you can. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. I'm very happy for all the people who have discovered a newfound sense of freedom and, of course, the beautiful landscape of the Intermountain West. But I also feel just a little bit sorry for the folks who are, you know, currently looking for homes in in the Intermountain West, particularly Utah and Idaho. Holy cow, the real estate markets have been so intense. Hottest real estate market most of us have ever seen. When you find the home of your dreams, you've got to have your financing squared away right now. And this is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah comes in. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She can clearly get you where you need to be when time is of the essence. We're talking from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. Reach out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Call 435-703-4522. Stop by their office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. I would think it's clear by now, at least to to a good chunk of people, maybe not everybody, but it should be clear that governments use global crises in order to take more control over our lives. Now, Doug Casey says sometimes that crisis may be real, but the current crop of opportunists and power seekers may have overplayed their hands. Got some great excerpts from an interview that he did with International Man. This was published on lewrockwell.com. And the interview starts with International Man pointing out, throughout history, governments have used crises, either real or imagined, to eliminate freedoms, expand the power of the state, and justify all sorts of things the populace would never accept in normal times. After World War II, did you realize this was Winston Churchill who famously said, never let a good crisis go to waste. I know, Rahm Emanuel said it under the uh, the Obama administration, but Churchill, I hadn't realized that uh, he was such a pragmatist as well. Now, this was when he and other leaders came together to form the United Nations, which they probably could not have created without the crisis of World War II. Ever since, it seems that each new supposed crisis causes a further centralization of global power. So the war on some drugs, the war on terror, the COVID hysteria, and the so-called climate crisis all have ratcheted up the centralization of power on the global scale. And so they asked Doug Casey, what do you make of this trend, Doug? And he says, well, it makes sense that Rahm Emanuel, a sleazy Obama apparatchik, would have stolen the phrase from Churchill. But the statement is quite correct, regardless of the source. Government lives on crises, or on crisis, rather. As Randolph Bourne said, war is the health of the state, and there's no crisis like war, but any kind of crisis can work. He says, Whatever, whenever you have a crisis, whether it's a military, political, economic, financial, or social crisis, the mob calls for strong leaders to kiss it and make it better. And this plays perfectly into the hands of the kind of people who work for the state. In fact, he says, as far as I'm concerned, it's a psychological flaw in humans stemming from the fact that we're pack animals. Pack animals want leaders. Now, Doug Casey says, I'm not sure how we solve this problem other than delegitimizing the idea of the state and defanging it as much as possible and stop lauding, even apothesizing its employees. 
But as long as the state exists, its basic impetus is to seek out crises. Crises benefit the state as an institution, but they also benefit the people who work for it. At this point, International Man asks him, they say, well, the the COVID hysteria took the uh, cynical concept of never let a crisis go to waste to a whole different level. Never before had the edicts of an unaccountable global institution like the World Health Organization affected so many people in such drastic ways. It seems the average person not only has to worry about local and federal bureaucrats affecting their well-being, but also global ones. And they ask Doug Casey, well, what's your take on this? Casey replies, well, over the last century, the reach of the state has moved from a local to a national to now an international level. See, that's what the concept of globalism is all about. The good news is that the bigger and more complex anything gets, including the movement toward globalism, the more inefficient, corrupt, and unwieldy it becomes. So perhaps the idea of globalism is getting big enough to self-destruct. In the meantime, some of globalism's and the state's most effective minions are NGOs, or non-governmental organizations. Now, these are generally supported by private giving, often estate planning. When people die, they want to do something for the benefit of humanity. That's an understandable emotion, although charity generally causes at least as many problems as it cures. Rich people particularly want to virtue signal, since today's society infuses them with guilt for their money. That plus they naturally want shelter from taxes. So they give money to all kinds of NGOs, and there are many thousands of them. Now, Doug Casey says NGOs are almost universally collectivist and statist in philosophy and have strong political agendas, although they disguise overtly political objectives with feel-good rhetoric. I mean, who could possibly be against agitating for world peace or fighting poverty? However, many amount to scams, few accomplish anything meaningful, and they almost all work closely with the government. Few of them produce anything but commercials, lobbying campaigns, and fat incomes for their insiders. Critical thinkers can help pull the rug out from under NGOs by never giving them a penny and challenging their actions. Speaking of globalism, NGOs, and a trend toward world government, he says, I have to mention that vaccine passports are a definite step in that direction. There will undoubtedly be a U.N. organization formed to standardize vax passports because right now there is a myriad of vaccine passports issued by various governments on different criteria in different formats. An internationally accepted vax certificate will amount to a world government passport. And it will probably be tied in with a social credit rating such as the one used by China. Naturally, that will be linked to everyone's digital currency account with the central bank. It will become an international ID document in much the same way that driver's licenses are effectively internal passports in the U.S. You'll be nobody and do nothing without it. Next, they ask him, it seems that so-called climate change is the next crisis du jour. Given the trends we've been discussing, how do you see governments taking advantage of this alleged crisis? And Doug Casey responds, global warming, a.k.a. climate change, is an excellent form of control, perhaps even better than a virus. People are being terrified into believing they're about to destroy the planet itself. And he says, fear is a foolproof way to control the masses. 
He says, it's funny, actually. The masses is a term Marxist-Leninists are very fond of. Government is always presented as a friend of the people, our democracy, or the masses. It's promoted as noble, wise, and forward-thinking savior that just steps in to stop the evil producers. It's one of the many false and horribly destructive memes stalking the earth today like specters. He says, the increasing belief in government is a magic solution to problems, acts to decrease the average person's standard of living, and creates all kinds of distortions throughout society. It's turned the study of economics into a pseudoscience, and its incursions into science are discrediting the idea of science itself. In fact, he says the two big hysterias currently plaguing the world both center on state involvement in science, or at least scientism. One is COVID, a relatively trivial flu blown out of proportion. The other is anthropogenic global warming, AGW, which has recently been rechristened as climate change. Now, Doug Casey says, in my view, both will be eventually debunked and discredited. But unfortunately, if you run counter to either narrative right now, you'll be canceled, fired, and or ostracized. It's very much like what happened to Galileo when he ran counter to the prevailing wisdom of the Middle Ages. Of course, the ruling class doesn't actually burn books anymore, but only because books today are mostly electronic. These attitudes constantly appear on sites like Google and Twitter. And he says there's an excellent chance that these people will discredit the very idea of science because they've wrapped themselves in the veil of science, or more precisely, what's become known as the science. They're creating something much more serious than just another economic disaster. Now, International Man follows up with the question, will many people see the government as some kind of benevolent and magical organization? It is this attitude that helps politicians take advantage of crises to advance their control because many people assume the government to be acting in good faith. And then they pose the question, what will it take to snap the average person out of this deluded hypnosis? Unfortunately, you're going to have to wait until the other side of the break to get Doug Casey's answer to that question. But it might be a good opportunity to reflect on what did it take to snap you out of the hypnosis? What did it take to push you over the edge that you would listen to such a subversive program as this one? Can't answer for you, but I'm glad whatever happened, happened. We'll come back to Doug Casey's commentary right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, jumping right back in. We've got no time to waste here. I'm sharing an article here from Doug Casey, How Governments Use Global Crises to Take More Control. And he's asked the question, okay, people who assume that the government is acting in good faith, what does it take to snap the average person out of that kind of deluded hypnosis? Now, I want you to hear Doug Casey's answer. Doug Casey says it's true that many people see the government as some kind of benevolent, magical organization. And this attitude helps politicians to advance because they're assumed to be operating in good faith. So what will it take for the average person to be snapped out of this hypnosis? Where's the red pill when the world needs it? Well, he says when a hypnotist hypnotist approaches a crowd, 
he knows that some people are much more liable to be hypnotized than others. It's a failing of human psychology that's especially true in the political world. Some people are much more likely to be hypnotized by politics and the idea of government than others. The exceptions are critical, independent thinkers who are always a minority. And it's always dangerous to be in the minority. So when asked, what can we do about it? Doug Casey says, first of all, forget about violence. That only plays into their hands. Present arguments against the idea of the state. Promote the idea of critical thinking. Expose politics as mass hypnosis. Point out that there's absolutely nothing that government can do that the market can't do, at least anything good. Now, there are some things that government does that are unique to it, like taxes, confiscations, wars, pogroms, uh, prison systems, regulations, and secret police. These things are the essence of government and are antithetical to the free market. So he says, I think it's important, for instance, to point out that throughout history, the most famous government officials are actually mass murderers and criminals. They're not benevolent. Let's look at some of the most famous names that you remember from your history books. The Pharaohs, Alexander the Great, Caesar, Genghis Khan, Louis Fourteenth, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, Pol Pot. Now, some are considered good, some are considered bad, but they are all mass murderers. Are any of our recent presidents any better, really? What happened in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and lots of other places, not even counting Korea and Vietnam, should make those responsible held for trial, probably followed by hanging. Nuremberg actually set a good example. And it's important to draw the crimes of the state and its minions to people attention, people's attention constantly. Anti-propaganda is a mass hypnosis vaccine. Let that statement stand as proof that I'm not anti-vaccine, per se. Ha! Next, he's asked, is there any good news or optimism despite all the bad news? So here's Doug's answer. He says, look, the bad news is the state is bigger and more powerful than ever. The institution has evolved and has become more clever. It's more able to reach its tentacles into everything than ever in the past, including the recent episodes with Nazis and communists. Here's the good news. It's getting to the stage where it's dysfunctional. Maybe the current major crises will backfire and self-destruct. Hopefully the nation state will be replaced by some voluntary phenomenon like files. If you're not familiar with that, you should uh, click on the link he provides that, that takes you to a definition. Or perhaps the rise of a parallel structure within the current framework. Crises can be real, like the impending economic collapse, or fabricated, like COVID and AGW. Crises will always be used as excuses for government expansion. But he says maybe they've overplayed their hand this time. Doug Casey says, I'd like to see the state disappear, of course, but considering the way the world works, the next step might might be crisis, or I'm sorry, might be chaos, which often follows crisis. Pretty good commentary, as always, from Doug Casey. So one final note here that I wanted to share with you. Have you been convinced that everything that came before us was wrong? Just asking. Got a great article here from Anthony J. de Blasi reminding us that the mindless attempt to remake America is really nothing more than run-of-the-mill Marxism trying to dethrone thousands of years of divine wisdom. 
So let's take a look at this. Anthony J. de Blasi says, The history and consequences of the attempt to take down America and change, uh, take, change take charge rather of everybody's life has been told, but the damning evidence has been kept from the public. He says there's time here for only a peek at the big picture. And by the way, seeking information and commentary on America's takedown should not be regarded as an idle pursuit of conspiracy theories, a buzzword used to deflect attention from official wrongdoing. So in a few words, he says, Marxists worked hard for over a century to correct American society. Deemed in their arrogance and clouded mentality, incorrect. Their trajectory for a remake of America would replace the wisdom of the creator with acceptable science, make morality irrelevant, and devalue every citizen in the name of, of justice, theirs. Who would be in charge of all this was left unspecified and undefined, but their actions pointed to tyranny at the highest level of authority. Non-compliant people would be disposed of one way or another. In Russia, Marxists preferred prison, gulags, and murder for the dissidents. In America, they chose education, that is, brainwashing and indoctrination and demonizing the opponents. So whether hard or soft, the mindless and heartless means would be justified by the desired end, establishing a collective world order, a.k.a. New World Order, a.k.a. Great Reset. Now, American Marxists steeled themselves during the major launch of communism in Russia in 1917 and its subsequent infiltration throughout the world after World Wars I and II. They dedicated themselves to brainwashing young people in public schools and beginning early in the 20th century, brainwashing adults through media and church into accepting a world devoid of Judeo-Christian content, spirit, and guidance, all of which stood in the way of their campaign. Infiltrating the schools has been well documented. Infiltrating the mainline churches accelerated during the 1970s when faux Christian change agents busied themselves making congregations believe that you could be a Marxist and a Christian at the same time. Now, it was never put this bluntly, of course. He says, I witnessed the process as a church organist in those years. Never mind that if a Marxist were asked what he thought of Christianity, he would very likely lie about it or gloss over the fact that Joseph Stalin, Marxist-in-chief of Soviet Russia, was suppressing Christians, as in today's communist China, and murdering over a million people. He says, I knew a young Christian pastor in Maine who was thrilled with the prospects of so-called liberation theology, the bogus union of Marxism and Christianity, designed to hoodwink real Christians into accepting a non-existing compatibility between Marxist ideology and Christian theology. Now, she apparently never actually compared the Christian gospel with the Communist Manifesto and mindlessly bought into the big lie that Marxism and Christianity are in harmony with one another. And so another benighted Christian minister had unwittingly joined the Marxist infiltration instead of preaching the gospel. <clears throat> Now, the brainwash in churches and across the cultural landscape of America spread quickly after the mid-century, working so well that by the 1980s, many fully awake Americans began to fight back in earnest, and so officially began the culture war. Now, it has been claimed on both sides that we, meaning the deplorables, lost the culture war. But he says that's too hasty a call. It must be pointed out in this connection that the lure of money created turncoats among previously stalwart organizations and publications initially dedicated to conserving our republic and Judeo-Christian principles of governance. These corrupted remakes of once loyal American organizations retained the title conservative. 
however, in line with Marxist deception. And Marxists are still brainwashing students, K-12 through and beyond, still acting as apparatchiks for the soft overthrow of the American Republic in academia, seminary, workplace, and media, funded by corporate money and philanthropic endowments flowing from agents and organizations with no use for America, God, or anything that defines real human beings living in the real world. So if you want to be taken seriously, he says, the governance of human beings must resonate with a love of people and acceptance of the natural order we find ourselves in. And then he says that implies a fundamental need to follow the one who put us here. If men far wiser than any of us accepted the God of the Bible as the ultimate authority when they formed our government, who are we to declare their blueprint for governance flawed? while benefiting from the great nation they left us at a cost in blood and sacrifice beyond current calculation. In this age of benighted followers of mindless and heartless despots, what is overdue is a politics-free examination of the real world that we must all deal with, a re-examination of transgenerational wisdom. It's the first time I've heard the word trans used in a non-offensive <laughs> context here. Thousands of years in the making, an unwavering faith in our Creator, whose word enlightens and encourages us to overcome the fear, intimidation, and money in the constant struggle against evil consequences. So if you haven't tapped into some divine wisdom lately, sounds like that might be a good place to start. Check out the articles in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.